And this morning, I want to talk about your source of comfort in trials. This is kind of the same, along the same theme as the women's conference. I thought I'd just kind of keep bridging on that a little bit to talk about what do you do when you're in a trial? I think we all see what's happening in the world and in our country and in politics and just, it's disturbing. You know, you're probably feeling like I am, like Lot, you know, when he was living in Sodom when his righteous soul was tormented. And when you look into the future and you see what's happening, you can get kind of disturbed and scared because what hope is there? What comfort is there? Well, I'm going to try and give you the anchor doctrine in the Bible that helps any believer have comfort in trials, and that is the doctrine of providence. If you're interested in the use of words, there is something cool to check out on the web called the Google Ngram Viewer. Ngram Viewer. Google has been trying to scan all the public domain books and so they've been working hard at it, and they have this huge database of words from all these books. And they, you know, they were trying to decide, you know, is there anything else we can do with these words uh, that we've scanned? And they made this little search engine that allows you to put in uh, a range in history and see how often certain words are used during that range from what has been scanned. You can put multiple words, and you can see on a graph how they've been used. If you do a search from the years 1550 to 2000, and you do a search for these two words, providence and luck, to see how those words have been used in the last 500 years, you discover that providence was super popular during the Puritan era because biblical literacy was high during the Reformation and then, starting about in the mid to late 1800s, you see the use of the word providence dropping off at a pretty sharp decline until about 1930, after the Enlightenment destroyed much of the church in Europe, and now the word is rarely used. It's almost gone extinct. The word luck, however, and lucky have taken their place. Those words were hardly ever used during the Puritan era, and now they're used off the charts. As biblical literacy has declined, people are ignorant of this amazing doctrine called the doctrine of providence. We have stopped believing in God and an all-sovereign God who, in the words of Isaiah 46.10, declares the end from the beginning and accomplishes all his good pleasure. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1.11, he is working all things after the counsel of his will. Now, unbelievers fear the all-sovereign God. <laughs> Believers, however, should swarm to the sovereignty of God like bees to honeysuckle. The sovereignty of God is his position of authority over all creation. Sovereignty requires that God be all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, everywhere present, and eternal. That makes him not just sovereign, but absolutely sovereign. And that is what we need to make sure we know about, that God is absolutely, positively sovereign over everything. Amen. Sovereignty of God is a bit complex, but though it is complex, it's one of the most encouraging doctrines in the Bible, especially when you're facing trials and hard times. The providence of God is a subcategory of God's sovereignty. The doctrine of God's sovereignty is his position, his authority, his, his, his 
rule as king over creation. And providence is how he brings about his will within his creation. Our text is going to be Genesis 50, verse 20. Don't turn there yet. We got a lot of major context to deal with, so just just know we're going to end up there eventually. The theme of Genesis is beginnings. In Genesis 1 through 11, you have four major events. You have the creation, the fall, the flood, and the creation of the nations at the Tower of Babel. Then in Genesis 12 through 50, you have four main people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Joseph's story is found in Genesis chapter 37 through 50, with the exception of chapter 38, which deals with Judah and Tamar. The life of Joseph is the greatest example of the providence of God found anywhere in the Bible. But who was Joseph? Joseph's father was Jacob, the twin son of Isaac, who acquired his birthright for a bowl of soup from his brother Esau, and later on, with the help of his mother, with a little deception. Jacob fled from Esau to the house of Laban to work for seven years so he could marry Laban's daughter, Rachel. On Jacob and Rachel's wedding night, Laban got Jacob drunk and swapped Leah for Rachel, his oldest daughter, And in the morning, Jacob was married to Leah, not Rachel. The deceiver was deceived. And so Jacob worked another seven years to marry Rachel to end up with two wives. Jacob eventually left Laban. Rachel took along her maid Bilhah. Leah took along her maid Zilpah. Then began what I like to refer to as the baby war. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, but Leah was more fertile than Rachel. Leah gave birth to five sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Rachel was jealous because she could not conceive and gave her maid Bilhah to Jacob as a wife. And Bilhah did bear children on her behalf. Bilhah gave birth to Dan and Naphtali. Leah stopped conceiving, and not to be out, Dan gave her maid Zilpah to Jacob as a wife, and Zilpah gave birth to two sons, Gad and Asher. The Lord eventually let Rachel give birth to two sons of her own, Joseph and Benjamin. In the aftermath of the baby war, Jacob had four wives and 12 sons destined to become the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, whoa, baby. God's decree, his all-encompassing plan for whatsoever comes to pass in his creation, includes everything that will ever take place. The good, the bad, the ugly. As Jonathan Edwards says, everybody who knows God knows that he knows all things, and to know all things beforehand, and to allow them to happen when you have the power to stop them, is to decree them. And part of God's decree or his all-encompassing plan was to send a famine upon the land to make Joseph ruler of all Egypt, to have the sons of Jacob move to Egypt so Joseph could care for them, so they could grow into this mighty nation, so they could leave Egypt, become a nation, and settle in the land of Canaan. But there's this huge problem. And here's the problem. How do you get a shepherd boy living in the land of Canaan to become ruler of all Egypt, especially in light of Genesis 43:32 and 46:34, which both tell us that Hebrew shepherds were loathsome in the sight of the Egyptians. They hated them. The Egyptians are not going to ask some loathsome foreigner to rule their country, except for the providence of God. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis 37. We'll start there. We're going to kind of take a rocket tour through the story of Joseph because you need to see the big picture so we can get the big bullet point that we're driving at. So look at Genesis 37. We're going to have to look at a lot of 
text. We're going to move through Genesis pretty rapidly. So let's just say, put yourself into Joseph's position and you're 17 years old. You are the firstborn son of the most loved wife. Your brothers are jealous of you because of that, and they hate you because you're daddy's favorite. Look at Genesis 37, verse 2. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. The phrase bad report means Joseph went out checked on his brothers, saw that they weren't taking care of the flocks properly, and ratted them, ratted them out to his, their dad and got them in trouble. This begins their hatred of Joseph, but it gets worse. Look at Genesis 37, verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than his, all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic, and his brothers saw that their father loved him more and all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Not only does Jacob favor Joseph, he gives Joseph a multicolored tunic to remind his brothers that dad loves me more than you. And so they hated him more, but it gets worse. Look at Genesis 37, verse 5. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. In the dream, Joseph's brothers were bowing down to him, not something big brothers like to hear. Look at Genesis 37, 8. Then his brothers said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you actually going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words, but it gets worse. Joseph had another dream, and this time his brothers, fathers, and mother were all bowing down to him. It's like, keep the dream to yourself, pal. <laughs> but he tells them that, and this time it even earns rebuke from Jacob, his father. And the text says in verse 11 of Genesis 37, Joseph's brothers were jealous of him, but it gets worse. Jacob sends his 10 older sons to shepherd the flocks, but of course, Joseph doesn't have to go because he's daddy's favorite. And after a time, Genesis 37 verse 12 says, Jacob sent Joseph to check up on his brothers again. Now keep in mind, the last time he went to check up on them, he ratted them out. And then it seems like the, the brothers knew that this might happen. So instead of going where they said they were going to go, they went somewhere else. When Joseph arrives in the spot where they're supposed to be, they're not there. However, it just so happens there's a man in the field looking for him. Genesis 37, 15 through 17, and who knows where the brothers are? Except this man who's looking for Joseph. Is this an angel? I don't know. Maybe. Genesis 37 verse 18 says, and when his brothers see Joseph approaching because they, this man in the field says, yeah, this is where they're at. So he goes to find them. They see Joseph coming and they plot to kill him. Joseph, of course, is unaware of this. Genesis 37, 18. Verse 20 Genesis 37, they said, now come, let us kill him and throw him into this one of these pits and we will say a wild beast has devoured him. Then let's see what will come of his dreams. Reuben, the oldest, intervenes and stops his brothers from killing Joseph, but allows them to throw Joseph into a pit. But things get worse. While Reuben is away, some Ishmaelite traders come by and Judah gets an idea. Hey, let's sell him as a slave. And they do just that. Now, I just want you to stop and think about what if you were Joseph at this point? How would you be feeling if your brothers sold you as a slave? Your own brothers conspiring against you to sell you as a slave. You're being taken by foreigners, probably tied up in a train walking through the desert to who knows where. To an unknown future, it doesn't look good. And keep in mind that Joseph could not help being the firstborn of the most loved wife. He couldn't help that his father loved that wife more or loved him more because he was the firstborn son of the most loved wife. He couldn't help it that his father gave him a coat of many colors. He didn't ask for it. 
He couldn't help it that he went and checked up on his brothers and bought back a true report and his brothers hated him for it. He couldn't help going out into the field, right? And not being able to find his brothers. And there's this man looking for him who knows where they're at. He couldn't help being thrown into the pit. He couldn't help be being sold into slavery. All these things were out of Joseph's control, just like pretty much everything in our lives. I mean, how many times did you think you were going to do something one day and never got to it? You know, control is kind of an illusion that we like to tell ourselves. But I think if you live long enough and you're truthful, you just need to say, if the Lord wills. And you can hear Joseph pleading, brothers, I beg you, don't do this. I am your brother. But they sell you anyway. They turn their backs. They walk away. And just imagine Joseph, tears streaming down his eyes, tied up in this slave caravan going towards Egypt. He cries out to God, but God doesn't seem to answer. And we might ask, you know, why do bad things like this? happen to good people? And this is the answer, because there are no good people. Second, Jesus was asked a similar question by his disciples in John chapter 9, verses 2 through 3, when they saw a blind man. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus healed him. God is sovereign over every single atom in the universe. When trials come our way, they are part of God's plan, his perfect plan for our life. God doesn't have any plan B. He only has a plan A that he executes with flawless precision. He accomplishes all his good pleasure. But we often don't specifically know what God is doing or why he's allowing this trial or this bad thing to happen to us or in the world around us. But never doubt that he is working all things for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So your brothers hate you. They reject you. They throw you in a pit. They sell you into slavery. They tell your father you've been eaten by wild beasts. No one's looking for you. You're taken to Egypt. You're sold as a slave to Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. You're now a slave in Egypt before a land full of pagans. Now think about that. How are you supposed to live for the Lord in that situation? This is how. Because your circumstances never keep you from giving God glory. And God is with you. After all, Potiphar puts you in charge of his household after a time. And though a slave, at least you have a pretty good life. But there's another problem, and this is in Genesis 39. Genesis, the end of Genesis 39, verse 6, says Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Some of us just have to cope with that. (laughs) Joseph couldn't help being handsome either. Joseph couldn't help that Potiphar's wife was unfaithful and lusted after Joseph and attempted to seduce him, but he kept refusing her. Genesis 39.10 says she spoke to Joseph day after day. He did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. One day, while the house was empty, Potiphar's wife grabbed hold of Joseph and attempted to seduce him, and he just bolted. And she literally tore the cloak off his back. And not accustomed to having her slaves refuse her, she became super angry. Look at Genesis 39, verse 14. See, she says, he has brought in a Hebrew to make sport of us. He came in to 
lie with me. And I screamed. And when he heard, I raised my voice and screamed. He left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. You know, look at it. See the garment? It's right there. Having framed Joseph for attempted rape, she could now replace Joseph with a more seducible slave. Joseph was cast into prison. Genesis 39, verses 21 and 22 says, the Lord was with Joseph. This is what we need to remember. All these things keep happening that are bad. Worse, 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 worse. It's like a Dickens novel. (laughs) It just forever gets worse. But the Lord is with him the whole time. The whole time. He has not abandoned him. Verse 23, Genesis 39, verse 23, the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. This is how it worked. The jailer realizes Joseph is a neat guy, honest, hasn't really done anything scary and says, I'll tell you what, I'll let you out of your cell. You can wander around. You have to do all of my work, but I'll give you that freedom to be out of your cell. So Joseph runs the prison and the jailer gets the money. One day Pharaoh had his cupbearer and baker thrown into prison. Both had dreams they didn't understand. Joseph, however, just happened to have the divine gift of interpreting dreams. He tells the cupbearer in three days he would be restored and tells the baker that in three days he would be executed. Joseph said to the cupbearer in Genesis 40, Verse 14, only keep me in mind when it goes well with you and please do me a kindness and mention me to Pharaoh to get me out of this house. Everything happens just as Joseph said it would, but Genesis 40 verse 23 says, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. I mean, can he just get a break? Genesis 41.4 says Joseph remained in prison for two more years. Now, what if this were you? What if you were in Joseph at this point? You've been in prison and you've been suffering. And when you finally get a little thing, could you mention me to Pharaoh? The guy forgets. But only for two years. Thanks, pal. And then Pharaoh, two years later, has two weird dreams Seven fat cows are gobbled up by seven skinny cows and seven fat ears of grain are gobbled up by seven scrawny ears. I don't know how that happens, but it happened in the dream. Dreams go outside of normalcy. Pharaoh knows the dreams are important, but he doesn't know what they mean. It was then that the cupbearer goes, hey, you know, your majesty. Ah, It skipped my mind two years ago. But there's this guy in prison who, you remember when you got mad at me and cut off the baker's head and let me be restored? Yeah. Well, this guy interpreted our dreams accurately. And so, you know, maybe you should go fetch him. So... Joseph is fetched out of prison, cleaned up, presented to Pharaoh, interprets Pharaoh's dreams. Both have the same meaning. There will be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. Joseph lays out a plan of what should be done. Pharaoh says to his advisors, Genesis chapter 40, verse 38, can we find someone like Joseph who is wise and has a divine spirit within him? Then the very unexpected thing happens next. Pharaoh takes off his signet ring, puts it on Joseph's finger, gives Joseph a necklace of gold, dresses him in fine linen, has everyone bow down before him and appoints Joseph ruler of all Egypt. Whoa. In one day, Joseph goes from being a betrayed, loathsome Hebrew shepherd slave, attempted rapist and prisoner to being ruler of of all Egypt. Selah. Think about that. Now, I'm going to kick in the afterburners because we have more context still. 
Seven years of plenty come. Joseph has Egypt store huge amounts of grain. The seven years of famine come. Egypt is the only nation that has food. Jacob back in Canaan is forced to send his sons to Egypt to buy grain. Little did they know, but Joseph is the one is the one that they have to buy grain from. <laughs> and Joseph overseeing the sale of the grain recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him because they haven't seen him for some 15 years. And he looks and speaks like an Egyptian ruler. And they all bow down to Joseph as Joseph's dreams predicted. Joseph, using the interpreter, speaks to them about their family, accuses them of being spies. In order to prove that they are not spies, Simeon is held hostage until their younger brother Benjamin can return with them to Egypt. They agree. As they return, they find the money that they used to buy the grain in the mouths of their sacks, and they don't understand how it got there. They go home. They tell their father what happened. He says, you're not taking Benjamin to Egypt because if you do and he dies, it'll bring my gray head down to Sheol in grief. So eventually they all eat the grain and they're sitting around looking at each other, listening to their stomachs grumble. And Jacob finally consents to let Benjamin go with them. And so they purchase more grain when they go down to Egypt. And Joseph restores Simeon to them and invites them to a feast. And Benjamin is given five times more than his brothers to eat. And they're like, what is that? Joseph takes a silver cup, puts it in Benjamin's sack. They haven't traveled far as they're heading back towards Canaan when Joseph sends soldiers out and says, somebody is, you know, taken my divining cup and we think it's one of you. They all deny that they have stolen Joseph's cup and they reply this in Genesis 44. Genesis 44 verse 9. With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will become my Lord's slaves. The cup is found in Benjamin's sack. Mm. They are all struck with terror and grief, tear their clothes, return with the soldiers, fearing what punishment awaits them. Standing before Joseph, Judah explains their father's love for Benjamin and volunteers to sacrifice his own life in substitution for Benjamin. Joseph, seeing true demonstration of the love from his brothers and Benjamin, decides to reveal himself to them. The brothers go back home and tell their father that Joseph is not only still alive, but he's ruler of all Egypt. And Jacob and his sons move to the land of Goshen in Egypt. And Jacob blesses his sons and dies. And all of that is background to our text. (laughs) So look at Genesis 50. Genesis 50, verse 20. Actually, we're going to start reading in verse 15. We'll read down to verse 21, but we're actually going to focus on verse 20. So look at verse 15 of Genesis 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin. For they did you wrong. And now, please forgive the transgression of your servants of the God of your father. Now, who knows whether Jacob actually said that or not, but that's what they said that he said. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result and preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So from verse 20, we're just going to extract three encouraging truths about facing trials in your future from the doctrine of providence taught in this text. First, you need to understand what providence is. Look at Genesis 50, verse 20 again. Notice, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. This entire verse tells us that God works through providence. But what is providence? 
providence, according to early Baptist theologian John Gill, is the means, quote, by which all the creatures God has made are preserved, governed, guided, and directed. God upholds all things by his power, governs the world by his wisdom, looks down upon the earth, takes notice and care of all his creatures in it, and makes provision for them, and guides and directs them to answer the ends for which they were made which is the sum and substance of providence, end quote. You know, it's kind of a shame when you hear Christians say things like, oh, you're so lucky. Oh, what a coincidence. That's kind of atheist speak. Isaiah 46.10 tells us God declares to the end from the beginning and accomplishes all his good pleasure. Do you believe that? Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Do you believe that? Notice, not love, not chance, not mother nature. The Lord. Ephesians 1.11, God is working all things after the counsel of his will. Christian, do you believe that? I hope so. Thomas Watson affirms, there is no such thing as blind fate, but there is a providence that guides and governs the world. Providence is God's ordering all issues and events of things after the counsel of his will to his own glory. Most of you surely drove your car here. How did your car know how to get here? And if you have a Tesla, it doesn't count. <laughs> It's kind of scary when you realize that a lot of cars are driving themselves down the road today. But anyways, for most cars, you still steer them, right? You're behind the wheel. Well, God is steering the entire universe, galaxies, nebulas, comets, all the way down to atoms and molecules, and every event in your life as you're going through trials. The good, the bad, the painful, who is born, who dies, who's sick, who's healthy, who has hardship, who gets rich, who gets poor. God has decreed whatsoever comes to pass and either directly causes things to happen or knowing they will happen allows them to happen, though he could stop them. Believe it. God is providentially guiding every single detail of your life and my life and every other thing. Thomas Watson, in an attempt to illustrate providence, said, suppose you were in a blacksmith shop and should see there several sorts of tools, some crooked, some bowed, others hooked. Would you condemn all these things because they don't look handsome? The blacksmith makes use of them all for doing his work. Thus it is with the providences of God. They seem to us to be very, very crooked and strange, and yet they all carry on God's work, end quote. God being absolutely sovereign by his perfect providence is guiding and steering and using everything in your life to accomplish his will. And you just need to believe it, to have faith in it. You don't need to know what God is doing, only that he is good. And he's accomplishing good for you, even though you can't figure it out. Secondly, second major point, know that providence cannot be thwarted. Look at the beginning of Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. Did Joseph's brothers sin against him? Yes. Were they jealous and angry with him? Yes. Did they sell him as a slave? Yes. Did they lie to their father about him being killed? Yes. Are they responsible before God for their sinful actions? Yes. But you ask, well, how can evil men do evil deeds, and yet God still accomplish his perfect will. Theologians have a word for it. Now, this is another jargon term. It's called the doctrine of concurrence. Just as the doctrine of providence comes under and is an aspect of God's sovereignty, so under providence comes the doctrine of concurrence. Concurrence says 
that God allows sinful men and angels to exercise their will to even violate his word, and at the same time, simultaneously, concurrently, he is able to accomplish his perfect decree through providence. I want to show you this very clearly. Turn back to Genesis 45. Genesis 45. This is when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, and this is probably one of the clearer texts on the doctrine of concurrence, an aspect of God's providence, an aspect of God's sovereignty. Genesis 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by. He cried out, have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Did you see that? Twice, Joseph says, you sold me here. True? Yes. But notice at the end of verse 5. For God sent me before you. Look at verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance now. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of his household and ruler of all Egypt. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, Thus says Joseph, God has made me Lord of Egypt. Come down to me and do not delay. Someone says, Pastor Jagger, I'm kind of confused at this point. Uh, did his brothers sell him into to Egypt, slavery in Egypt, or, or was it God? I mean, I mean, who was it? Was it God or was it brothers? And the answer is yes. Do you see the will of man working concurrently at the same time? With the will of God, it's very clear there, isn't it? That is the doctrine of concurrence, or as one of my seminary professors described it, the simultaneity of first and second causes, if you want to sound smart. Do you see how comforting, though, God's sovereign providence and concurrence is if you're going through a trial? Take comfort, believer. God is working in every detail of your life to accomplish his perfect and good will. He even works concurrently with the sinful and evil deeds of men who violate his word and still accomplishes his perfect plan for you. It was read earlier, right? We know, or at least we should. I think many have forgot that God causes some things to work together for our good. Not all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. Third, know that providence works for good. Look at the middle of verse 20. But God meant it for good. What meant, what's it? Their evil deeds. He meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Yes, they did evil. Yes, they sinned, and yes, God used their sinful and evil deeds for good by sovereign providence and concurrence. Believer, you need to purge from your mind thoughts of luck and chance and accidences and coincidences and get back to the truth that we serve a God who is absolutely sovereign, who knows the end from the beginning, who has declared the end from the beginning, who is bringing all things to accomplish his perfect will. The unbeliever, the person who doesn't know the Bible, they look at Joseph's life and they say, man, what a tragedy. How unlucky. Blind fate is gobbling up Joseph's life like a great monster. 
I mean, after all, you know, it's so terrible that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And how unfortunate was that Jacob favored Joseph, which made his brothers hate him. How unlucky that he had those dreams and how uh, 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 unlucky it was that he found the man in the field and that he was thrown in the pit and the traitors happened to come by and Judah had the idea to sell him and blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. The Bible teaches there is an all-sovereign God, and he's guiding every detail in the universe by his perfect providence and concurrence to accomplish his perfect, unalterable will that cannot be improved upon. The person who knows and believes in God's providence looks at Joseph's life, and this is what they see. Jacob favored Rachel so Joseph could be favored, so he could check up on his brothers and bring back a bad report, so he could receive the coat of many colors, so he could be hated even more, so he could have two sets of dreams and be hated even more, so he could be sent to check up on his brothers, so he could find a man in the field, so he could find his brothers again, so he could be thrown into the pit instead of killed, so he could be sold as a slave while Reuben was away, so he could rise to power in Potiphar's house, so Potiphar's wife could lust over him because he was handsome, so he could be framed for rape, so he could throw it into prison, so he could interpret the cupbearer's dream, so he could be forgotten by the cupbearer for two years until Pharaoh had his two dreams, so he could interpret Pharaoh's dream, so he could be made ruler of Egypt, so he could save Jacob from and his sons from the famine. So, and so Jacob could, Jacob's sons could multiply in Egypt and so they could be led out of Egypt by Moses so they could become God's chosen nation at Sinai so they could receive the word of God so they could produce the Messiah so that you and I could be saved from our sins. That is the sovereign providence of God. And when you survey the life of Joseph, you just see all those bad things happening to him are just single links in God's working to put Joseph where he needs to be to accomplish his plan for Joseph. He's doing the same thing in your life. He's doing the same thing in my life. He's doing the same thing for everyone's life because he's sovereign. Yes, from man's finite perspective, there is no way a loathsome Hebrew shepherd, foreigner, slave, convicted, rapist could become ruler of all Egypt. It's impossible for men, but not with God. The Apostle Paul says so, Romans 8, 28, you know, and we know, and we need to know this. We need to know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. We need to know it. Please note that God's providence is not working all things for good in everyone's life, but only in the lives of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. If you have not repented of your sins, if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you're, you're delaying until you can pick your own husband or do your own whatever in the world or maintain your own control or because you don't want to part from your sins or whatever it is, you need to turn from your wicked way and your unrighteous thoughts and you need to turn to the Lord and find forgiveness and pardon from the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected from the dead. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. If you've never done that, do it right now. Where you're sitting, call out to the Lord. Tell him you're a sinner. Tell him you know you deserve to be judged, but you believe in Jesus. And if you're having a hard time believing in Jesus, say, Lord, help my unbelief. Change me, make me new. Turn me into a new creature in Christ. I'm tired of being a slave to sin and Satan. You do that, you will be born again, and then God's providence will be working everything for your good the rest of eternity. And let me ask you right now, if you're still sitting there, okay, well, the, the whole Genesis thing, was a, there was a big bite. Okay, let's look at something familiar to all of us in the New Testament. Who killed Jesus? Was it Judas? who betrayed him? Was it Pilate who tried him? Was it Herod who refused to try him? Was it the false witnesses who testified against him? Was it the crowd who cried out crucified him? Was it the Romans who beat Scourge and nailed him to the cross? Or Satan who was working in all of these people? They all exercised their will to do evil. 
They all exercise their will to commit the greatest sin ever committed in the history of the world. But what about the all-sovereign and good God who works all things after the counsel of his will? Where was God when evil men were killing Jesus, God's son? Jesus tells us in John 10, verse 17 and 18, after describing himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, he says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again, up again. No one takes it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from the Father. Jesus was not a victim. He was a willing sacrifice. Peter, in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, preaches to the Jews, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Do you see God's sovereign plan, his providence, and concurrence? Peter prays this in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. For truly, in this city, they're gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Sovereignty, providence, concurrence in action. Believer, I'm sure some of you are disturbed about all the evil that is in the world. I mean, basically, you'd have to be in a coma not to be. Scary times are approaching. Lawlessness is increasing. Immorality is increasing. We're being lied to, just lying, just rampant, just everything. is just about lying now. Just everybody is just lying. And for those of you who are not anxious, you just need to wait a little bit because you will be. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14, 22. And all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3, 12. And as you suffer, when you suffer, take your eyes off of your circumstances, off yourself, off your feelings, off the injustices committed against you and place them on the Lord Jesus Christ. Remind yourself of the truth. I worship a sovereign God. I worship a God who is working all things after the counsel of his will in my life. My trials are fewer than my sins. I've never received what I truly deserve from the Lord. Did you notice in the reading in Romans 8 verses 37 and 38 when it says, quoting the Old Testament, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered? And do you see what comes right after that? For we are huper nike. Nike is like the shoes, the sporks. Company, Nike, Hooper, Hyper. We are Hyper Nike. Nike means conquers, super conquers. We are overwhelmingly conquers through him who loved us. Even if we die at the stake, even if we get burned at the stake, even if we get tortured, even if we lose our jobs, even if we're hated, even if we're cast in prison. Man, this life is a vapor. We have eternal glory waiting for us. He's working all things out for your good if you love Jesus, if you are called according to his purpose. And this is our greatest comfort in times of trial. 
We don't know what God's doing. We don't know why he's doing. I mean, there's some things given to us in the Bible and kind of generalities. We know he's working things for our good, but it just doesn't seem that way. When you're in the midst of your little hurt, your trial, your whatever, it just doesn't seem that God is working this for your good. You can't imagine how it's working for your good. You're, you're like Joseph at year 17 in prison. Like, what's the Lord doing? I don't know. It's been 17 years of bad, and I don't know. Thomas Watson, in his work, All Things for Good, writes, quote, You that are Christians believe that God's providence shall conspire for your good at last. The providences of God are sometimes dark, and our eyes are dim, and we can barely tell what to make of them. But when you cannot unriddle providence, believe it shall work together for the good of the elect, Romans 8, 28. The wheels in a grandfather clock seem to move contrary to one another, but they help forward the motion of the clock and make the chime strike. So the providences of God seem to move contrary to one another, but for all of that, they carry on the good of the elect. Are you one of the elect? Then be at peace. No matter what happens, God's going to use it for your good. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your kindness, your grace, your wisdom, your mercy. Lord, we're thankful that you are sovereign, that you are working in providence in all the things in our life, even concurrently with demons and Satan and evil men purposely opposing your written word. And yet, Father, you are able, because nothing is impossible to, for you to bring about your perfect plan. We saw amazing things in the life of Joseph. We saw amazing things in considering Jesus, that at one time, the greatest sin ever committed in the history of the world was committed. And at the same time, the greatest act of love for mankind was demonstrated. I pray for those here, Lord, who don't know you, who have never repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus. May you right now turn them away from their sin and the love of this world to faith in Jesus Christ. Cause them to be born again so that they enter in the ranks of the elect, the chosen, and they can have a good hope that you are working everything out for their good. For those who know you, Lord, help them to face trials, trusting in you, not looking on their circumstances, but looking to you, the all-sovereign and good God. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.